this is the real center of everything and it's something that we refer to as the harmonic note. There's a harmony in every single business, which is the reason that you exist, which is the deepest part of your DNA connected to the deepest part of the DNA of your market, your audience, whoever works with you. Hey, welcome back to All In with Rick Jordan. I'm your host, Rick Jordan. What's shaking, everybody? And I have David Childs. Dude, that's the first time I said your full name, even outside the pre-show, and I'm kind of liking it. It's a, it, awesome. it's a, it's a good name, man. It's like Rick Jordan, David Childs. You know, it's, <laughs> it sounds good. You know, there's, there's not many of us, but one, one thing I found out after 9/11 uh is if you search for david childs the first thing that comes up is the guy who designed the tower that replaced the towers his name is david childs so i'm in good company oh wow that's awesome really cool yeah i dig that so dude we were talking a little bit before show and there's some things that are popping out at me you know because you have what you had had a branding agency and can it's called living blueprint and that's more in the executive side of things right what's ironic to me is that you're training execs right c levels i'm assuming correct c-levels and owners yeah and yeah when we get into our full process and stuff we'll actually permeate and actually work with the staff more and build programs that they can follow but we always start right at the top nice nice the thing that's crazy about that is that you didn't finish high school but that you're teaching executives how to do their gig man that's a weird dichotomy that's taking place how does that work out i i couldn't i couldn't have predicted it because um but as I so as I wrote my book Monster, which we're, we've got the first draft, it's over my shoulder here. Awesome. I, I wrote a passage in there, which is kind of me. It, it, it talks through me sitting in the boardroom of a billion dollar company when you know there's 15 executives plus the owner, and yeah. they're all deeply yeah. educated. And then there's my team that are all deeply educated, and I'm running the show, and. There, there was this moment where you kind of look down and go, well, how, how did I get there? Like, this doesn't make any sense. For sure, man. Um, 25 years ago, I was a roofer. Before that, I was a professional musician. Like, I've tried as many things as I could. And really, the reason I think I can I can lead in a team of executives is because I, I don't have the university training in agencies and stuff like that. Like I never came up in an agency. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know how agencies do anything. I don't know how strategy is done. I didn't even know strategy was an option for to make money. I had no idea. So what you're saying and is you just, weren't tainted. You weren't conditioned. I wasn't conditioned, but you know what's interesting? If, if you learn from a brilliant person which is, I, I would advocate that, but if you learn from a brilliant person, there's a certain amount of you that is deleted because they will bring out great things in you. Yeah, but there's also yeah. the idea that this is how it works. You can question it if you want, but it works. Where when you're sitting there going, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know I can make this organization better. Everything is on the table. You can dig everywhere. You can learn everywhere. And that's really where all of our processes came from because I didn't know where to start. So that's actually been one of our biggest advantages is there's absolutely no rules. Dude, you just hit a, that was like a a fury of straight truths, man. That was fantastic. The one that just floored me. What you said right away was that when you learn from a brilliant person, 
some of you is always deleted. That's that's mind blowing. Now you've got me thinking, like going back because I I've had lots of mentors across the span of my lifetime, you know, and mm-hmm. you know you're really in that role. What you're talking about, you're really in that mentor role for everybody that you work with. They're allowing you some control in, as far as guidance over their life and direction and everything else. But in that process, yeah. you know, calling you brilliant, you probably see this with them too. Is that there's some parts that are deleted from them? I'm wondering what was deleted for me over the past decade or so. Mm-hmm. You know, and it makes me reflect uh, you know, on that a little bit. Th- this is th- this is actually in, in part the deepest part of, of what we do because once I, I kind of came to terms with that, and this actually started when I was very young. I refused when I became a musician. I yes. refused to learn music. I refused to learn anybody else's music. So when I started getting into bands, we would go and set up all of our gear, and I could play um, the guitar player, and I could play. Everybody asked the same question. What songs do you know? Yeah. I, I don't know any. And they all looked at me like I was insane. And I'm like, well, I, I'm like, I don't want to sound like anybody else. I'm searching for what I sound like. So if I study this guy or that guy and learn how they do all of these things, my fear, and I don't know if this is true, Rick, I don't know, but my fear was, well, what if I end up just sounding like Eddie Van Halen? I don't want that. What if I end up sounding like this guy or that guy? So I had to find musicians that, you know, because my theory always was, hey, well, let's just start on the second string, which is an A, I believe, and let's just see where that goes and we'll follow each other. Yeah. So I carried that forward into business too, with the just not learning the ropes. But back to the part of things being deleted, when we had to build a whole process that actually stops that from happening with clients. So how do you bring what you bring into a client and help them without deleting them along the way, even just fragments. And how do you find those fragments, isolate them and make them deeply more important? And that that was what we did. That's intriguing. Did I also catch you say, you know, I would start on the second string, which is an A, I believe. You know it's an A, right? (laughs) I do, but when I was young, I would definitely question that. For sure. It's an A. And then then these (laughs) concepts of like a relative minor would come up and I'm like... Oh, Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh. Yep. So... I, I don't know like the cage system. I'm aware yeah. of it. I don't know it. Yep. So I do even with music. I have to be careful with what I who I work with. But the same pattern is now with me in business. Um, but I'll, I'll correct that a little bit because we've actually formally built a process now. Um, it opens up who I can work with because we follow something that's that's proven that yeah. we've done with really big companies. So now people can trust me a little bit more. But I tell you, Rick, when I started going into a big company and with no credentials and all that, they're like, well, what are you going to do for me? So yeah, I yeah. earned my way up. Like I started doing websites and I just earned my way through and ended up doing more and more and more strategy. And sorry, I might end up on monologues every once in a while. Please feel free to just chop in. But um, I will when I need to, but happened. you're rocking it, man. I appreciate the combo. Okay, good, good. Where something so something happened was we were working with this architect. It's a guy from the U.S. who okay. um, he's deeply odd and unusual, and he also just happens to build homes for people like Vidal Sassoon, Phil Paul, Phil Collins. He actually lived with Phil Collins in Bel Air for three years while he built a house. Oh, wow. And he's got some wild stories of hanging out with Phil Collins. So he's very unusual. He's got a very unusual aesthetic. He has very wealthy, very elusive clients. And he hired us to do his branding for him. And this was when 
I, I didn't know how I did what I did. I had no idea. There was no systems, no strategy, but I had an office full of people. So one day I, I was working with a client and I was walking back with one of my staff members from his office and I had that, I, I figured it out. So I went back to my office. I'm like, okay, with this architect, this is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to work. And I told my team, okay, here's your brief, go. And it didn't take long for my lead designer to come back to me. And he basically stood right in front of me and he said, how do you know that's correct? Yeah. And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, so you're saying this guy's paid us all this money and you're going to take this and you have no idea if it's going to work or not. And I said, yes. And we argued to the point, which I'm not proud of, but I had to point at the door and say, do it or leave. Because he was just absolutely saying, you don't know what you're doing. You're making it up as you go along. And to be honest with you, Rick, I had to kind of agree with him because I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. But that didn't mean it wasn't right. So then I'm like, okay, fine. If, if, we just, if it just happens that I can figure companies out every single time, there has to be something going on. Yep. So I went on a quest. I said, okay, fine. If there's a pattern, I want to find it. Otherwise, my I, I feel my business isn't worth much and I'll never go as far. And when I get really big clients, what if I fall flat on my face because of sure. what I'm doing? So it took a few years. And the, the bar that I set was anybody should be able to do it without me in the room. So we did that. We got there. It took a few years. And the reason the book is sitting here is I went, okay, if a process works, there has to be a psychological reason, a pattern for it to work. Otherwise it wouldn't work. So that's what the book is about. It's the psychological reason It's the deep underlying reasons that a process would work. So, so to put it in like mechanical terms. Yeah. Like so what do you do, man? Because uh, yeah, a lot of this is sounding very mystic as I'm listening to this. It's almost like you walk <laughs> in and you like wave some hands, you know, burn some incense, you know, <laughs> I mean, I understand that there's a process and everything, but it sounds very ethereal the way you're explaining it, you know, so, so what happens and, and what is it when you see somebody, because it sounds like you've got this honed in to the point now, which is a very important concept, I think, in business to where you are probably selective now with the people that you work work with correct because yes. there's probably some that will not submit to the process that you have and that's actually okay yes. from a business perspective that is okay yeah you know that it's okay you know just like when you're talking about music how you had to be very careful about who you worked with because your mind goes in a certain direction and not everyone's going to resonate with that and it's a, it's a fantastic, and this is why everyone says to pick niches and everything else, but yes, pick a niche in business, but at the same time, even within that niche, it's like right off the bat, half the people are going to hate you and half the people are going to like you, you know, and then acquired even taste. right on. Yeah. There's that acquired taste part, right? Unfiltered Dave, you know, that's interesting. You know, we should dive into that and unpack in a little bit too, but yeah, what, what you're saying, man, just sounds very like voodoo-ish and I know it's not, you know, so, <laughs> but you're coming from you're coming at from that angle because i could i could i could envision people listening to this and because as soon as it goes into the mystic it's very easy to say well you're full of bs like because because what are you going to do magic potion you're going to yeah. make it up 
But I get it because I, I, I know your mind because I'm a musician too. And that's, I can, I, I hear what it's saying, but I'm also putting myself in the shoes of other people, you know? So when you go in and you make a sales yeah. pitch, you know, how do you resonate with that person? How do you find the right person that you can work with? Because there are, I mean, like uh -huh. me, I, I was a musician, semi-pro, you know, I've played in front of thousands as a front man, you know, I was really good. Mm -hmm. And I understand how that concept works, but then I also could flip yeah. over to the left brain too, you know, and actually yeah. have a, have an intellectual conversation with individuals and draw, which is, I'm assuming what you do is draw from that creative side of you and actually be able to put application to it in the linear, yes. you know, which is what yes. most executives feel, no matter where they're at on a disc profile or whatever else, most executives are pretty freaking linear unless they're a visionary, right? Because unless you're yes. the CEO or the chairman or the founder, you're pretty much an integrator, you know, a COO, a CFO, and you are that linear thinker because you need to have that type of mindset versus like like me i get it i walk in and i blow things up just for the sake of blowing things up and then everyone else tries to figure out how to make it work right? exactly <laughs> yes. I, I, I was in a conference once just in the crowd with um what's the guy's name i can't remember he's, he's a famous business consultant he's the consultant of the the um million dollar consulting uh, i don't uh, know that guy Anyway, so he, he asked, like, you know, he's going around a room and he's, you know, asking yeah. people questions. So I put my hand up. He's like, what do you do? I'm like, well, I go into companies and I, I sink the boat and then make a new one. And the guy looks at me and goes, never say that again. We're going to all agree in this room right now that you're yep. never going to say those words again. I'm like, well, here I am. On and that's podcast. unfiltered Dave <laughs> right there. <laughs> there you go. Yep. Bingo. So, uh, okay. So let's... Uh, I'm going to go I, I almost went off on a tangent but we're, let's get down to a specific point that i can tackle here because yeah that's like cool because yeah because where somebody comes in and says you know i need help you you identify them as, as someone yeah. who can resonate with you you know and this is probably important in the sales process anywhere too because you identify pain and if they're pretty much telling you here's my yeah. freaking pain right you know what it is yeah. but then how do you how do you match up because with what you described to me it was just it was very abstract you know, so how can you Fair, say yeah. this is how you can, uh, you know, how do you pick that one thing even, you know, for everybody that's listening, how do you even find that one thing to where you can hone in on one single part of your process and say, this is how yeah. I can help you? Because you never want to give the whole thing right there because they won't be able to grasp no. it, a full download, right? So how do you find that one area that you can hone in on to say, let's start here? So I think the easiest way to talk through that is to give specific examples because they're, they're varied, but they have commonalities. So some of the commonalities are accelerated growth. They're always interested to know if they're doing it right. So we worked with an airline a few years ago and it was actually, uh, it was in 2007, I started working with them. Okay. And this one was succession and downturn in the market because there was a 2008 recession that hit. Yeah. And the son was taking over for the dad. And he needed to, to get a hold of the executive team to follow him. His dad was very much old school. He was the top-down pyramid. And his son didn't think that way. He wanted to get the best out of his team. So when I started working with them, the beliefs they had about themselves was they were cheap, family run and from the South Terminal. That was the three things that they told everybody. Okay. And they had been marketing for decades, literally for decades, to, to people that were just flying to meet friends and family. And when I, so the pitch for that 
Now, this is really going to scare viewers. I hope I'm not making myself look terrible here. But I remember <laughs> sitting in front. Dude, just go all in. I, was in this, <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, there's me in a room on one side of a table. Their CFO was on the other side and then like 10 executives. And I put out my proposal and I looked straight into the, the CFO's eyes and I said, there's nothing in that except for budget and it's high and low. And he's like, well, what are you going to do for us? And I said, look, you guys are transitioning. I showed them examples. I said, we did this for this company. We did that. This is the process that we go through. So I'm going to take you through this process. And what we're going to do is we're going to deeply understand who you are, how you connect to the world, and we're going to capitalize on that. We're going to make that the most important feature of your business and move forward. I know it's going to cost at least this much, and I think it's going to cost that much. So the pre-stuff that had happened before there was I had done a couple of small jobs with them. I did some naming for their products and stuff. So they had an idea of how I think, but I could also show other clients and say, well, we help these guys go from here to here. And yeah. this is how. Now that I've got much more of a, oh, and by the way, the, the end of that, um, after two years, we did a, a video and I'm, I'm very much leaving a lot out here, of course, but we did a video with the owner of that where he revealed that in the past two years, their revenue grew 28% in the middle of the recession. And he accredited that to us. So the truth of that was it was only six months because when we put out the actual packaging and strategy, it was only six months before the video. Wow. And it was really, we, we figured out that 80% of their business comes from working with businesses. So we stopped all online advertising. We stopped all advertising completely. We basically dropped their website. We built an old school presentation folder and we went around knocking on businesses' doors and did business with them. And their revenue went straight up. Because what we had uncovered, and this is the real center of everything, and it's something that we refer to as the harmonic note. So there's a harmony in every single business, which is the reason that you exist, which is the deepest part of your DNA connected to the deepest part of the DNA of, the, of your market, your audience, whoever works with you. You have one as a human being with your family. You have a harmonic note with them. You have one with, I believe, Dan in, in I think is that who's with you now. You have one with your clientele, your market, when you're on stage. There's a harmonic note that makes you intrinsically valuable to them so they will listen. And that's balanced equally with what you want to bring to the world as you stand as a human being. And that is the part that we actually figured out. We figured out that thing right in the middle, the harmonic note that makes everything work because everything outside of that is absolutely trivialized. And it was funny, I heard you, something popped up in Facebook the other day of you saying, you have to stand and act from who you are. That's the only yeah. thing that you are. Yep. And what I wrote in my book is you are your biggest opportunity. Hands down. It does not matter what anybody else is doing. I don't look at any of my clients' competitors, historically speaking, because who's to say they got their marketing right? Yeah, for who's sure. Who's to say they got their positioning right? Most people don't. Yeah, yeah. And um, just two little quick asides to kind of build a case here. Um, in 1908, Graham Wallace, I just got a pull something up from my book here because I want to get his quote right because it's pretty good. So Graham Wallace is a guy who wrote a book called um, Human, Human Nature and Politics. And he was also just happened to be the co-founder of the London School of Economics. So this guy was no chump. So he wrote this book that apparently got a huge amount of like it, it changed the world in its own way. But what he said in the book was striking. And this is in 1908. Mm. No television, no radio, none of that. 
no internet, all that wasn't there. And his point was, the world he lived in at that time provided the public with an unending stream of stimuli, sensation, and evocative memories to a point where, sim where people simply could not accurately grasp reality. They would never know who they are. And I, I think it was 40 years later, Maslow came out and basically stated, 2% of the world's population will ever be self-actualized. Hmm. Wow. Meaning that harmonic note, deeply understanding who you are, yeah, where you yeah. fit into the world, how, what the world wants from you and offering that back to a point where you can just go forever because it's innately inside of you to just never stop. Yeah, yeah. Does that sound whimsical? That's a, no, <laughs> no, not at all. And that's the part that, okay. yeah, I knew there was more depth, of course, to it, right? And I love how you're talking. It's funny because I haven't done exactly what you did in a sales presentation yet, but, you know, where it's, you're just sliding over a number and that's about it, you know, but I've done something similar to that, you know, when you said budget high and low, whatever it is, you know, and the last yeah. will give us a proposal and I'll say, well, what's that going to change? You know, <laughs> yeah. if I give you a proposal, it's true. Yeah, I mean that's just. I mean, when when I explain, I'm like, listen, I'm just direct and blunt with any prospect. It's like, listen, proposals are where sales go to die. You know, so I do, if you're yeah. asking for that, I don't even think we're at that stage yet, because the proposal itself is something yes. to kind of just skip over. Because if you're bought into the concepts, if you're bought into the outcome that we're talking about here, that's the reason to do business. And if I give you a ballpark, like you said you did, yours was just on paper, you know, the budget, the high and the low, if I give you a ballpark, I'm going to be in that realm. Because if I give you a number and I go over it, you're never gonna trust me again. You know, but- hey, Crack, you're noggin' a little bit deeper on that? So here's the problem with proposals. And this is deep. And, and actually what you said triggered my biggest point when I get nice. the proposal. Was, I looked at them and I said, okay, I don't know your company yet. And, and dude, this is how the world works. And it's absolutely insane. And maybe people will listen to this and go, he's right, because I honestly believe I am. But this is the crux of the biscuit, right? Here. Yeah, the crux so of I the biscuit. I spend an hour with <laughs> Let me remember that phrase, okay, please. The crux of the biscuit, please. <laughs> I dig deep for some of these. So <laughs> you go in and you meet with somebody <laughs> in the sales process. Yeah. Right? And I go and I, I read your website and I, I look around and I learn about you and I do what I can. But of course, it's at surface level. Yeah. Why would I? I go further if I don't even know I'm going to work with you. So now you and I sit down for an hour. You've got a thousand people in your company, 400 people, 12, whatever. And I listen to you and Rick's like, you know, I'm pretty smart. And I'm like, damn it, you are. You are the smartest. Why? Because I'm pandering. Why? Because I want to work with you. Why? Because if I sell you back to you, Rick, yeah. and make it convincing and I show how much I believe in you and how great you are because I read your website and watched your podcast, the likelihood of you buying goes up because vanity, because of BS. All the time. I'm doing my best not to say bad words here. But so if I sell you back to you, it's an easy sale. Now, here's how I do that. So I look at your company and then I look for a hole in the market. You sell cups. Now, the hole in the market is there's cups, but nobody's put a little thing on the seat, little sea level thing on the side now. Hasn't happened yet. So I go, there's a hole in the market. We're going to put that on the side. And then you go, wow, what a great proposal. So I give you the proposal, it's gonna cost a hundred grand, it's gonna take yep. six months, we're gonna to work together and I'm gonna build that thing on the side of a mug that nobody's ever done before. So here's the problem. 
I sell that to you. Now I have to legally live up to that. I'm bind, I'm bound to that by your deposit. I am bound to that by every payment. I am measured against that by everything that I do for you for six months. And I have to give you that in the end. Rick, what happens in three months when I figure out that's the worst thing I could possibly do to your business yeah. because I learned your business? <laughs> now what do I do? Exactly. What do I do? Do I come into you yep. and I probably sit down and say, Rick, I figured it out and it's nothing to do with what I gave you. That's not the way the world works because now you're legally attached to an outcome that was made up. Dude, that's a, absolutely yep. no bearing on reality. You got it, Zero. man. Right on. I'll always say it takes at least nine to 18 months for my team to learn the business of the new client that we brought on board because it, it just is, you know, because it, it it's not even learning the products or the services or any of the fulfillment processes that they have. Exactly. It's completely irrelevant. It's learning the people there, learning the mindset, learning what they're focused on, learning what they're distracted with, figuring out, right, like, what you're doing you're trying to get everybody back to that har harmonious note did i say that right harmonic harmonic note thank you yes but back to that center you know so even from a cybersecurity perspective that my biggest yeah. company is in it's really the same thing but it's finding out where mm -hmm. everybody points to and where is the the rush of the tide flowing to where's that current going down the river which way is it going to branch off trying to fly a drone or a helicopter over tw 10 miles down the river to see what could possibly be up ahead that takes time you know, and there, there's no possible the way that anyone can walk in at a sales engagement and say, hey, here's the money, right? And this is exactly yeah. what I'm going to do for you. It's impossible. Yeah. Anybody that says you that. You have to lie. Yeah. It's full of BS. It's freaking full of yeah. BS because you're, you're, if you're saying, hey, I'm going to do this exact one specific thing for you, it's BS because you don't even know them yet. You don't even know the what their is, goals are. The problem is... To a reasonable extent, that's business as usual. Oh, for sure. And it's talk. tragic. Yes. That's what you get. And you know why they get that from you? Because, Rick, you're an expert. Rick, you should be able to look at my business and know. In a split second. Because you're right? an expert. Yep. Absolutely. So let's go back to Graham Wallace and Maslow for a second. Yeah. Let's pretend, let's just pretend for the sake of conversation that those two gentlemen were 100% correct. So what that means is the vast majority of human beings under... Graham here will have no sense of self. Now, businesses are made of human beings. So we can we can push that forward and say now it's even more complicated. So then we can say most businesses don't know who they are. Yeah. Now, if we look at Maslow, he says 2%, so there's 8 billion people on the world. So there's 160 million of us that are anomalies that actually know who we are. So let's just pretend all of that is true and not debate it. Okay, it's, it's true. Why not? All right. So now when when you go into a client, do you believe them? They tell you all these wonderful things. They say, this is who we are and all of that. Okay, there's a 98% chance they're wrong. So what do you listen to? That's the whole thing. What yeah. do you listen to? Yeah. Because I, I gave up on listening to my clients years ago because if I listen to what they say, it's all amazing and it sounds great. Yep, yep. But it's not necessarily true. So we put a lot of time into evidence tracking. And then once you get the evidence, you can take the evidence in with a group. And then instead of asking them why the evidence exists, ask them how they feel about it. Ask yes. them if the evidence is true. Yeah. Validate the evidence. And then you're looking for recurring evidence, things that happen over and over and over and over and over again. I don't care if something happens once in 20 years. That's anomaly. It's outside of the realm of normality. So that could have happened for any reason.
But if there's something in your business, Rick, that happens over and over and over again, that's what I want. Yeah, because then yeah. I can sit down with you and your team and get you all to tell me stories about it and ask you how you feel about it. And what happens there, and my co-author actually enlightened me to this concept called the we consciousness. Have you ever heard of this? No, no. Enlighten me, man. Okay. I'm excited. It, it sounds fun... good. Yeah, I know. It's from Ken <laughs> it's... Wilber, who my co-author actually has spent time with, and he knows. And Ken Wilber is the guy who did a lot of the structuring for the movie um, The Matrix, a lot of the psychological structure. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Yeah. He's, he's a heavy hitter. So the <laughs> yeah, it is because he's way out there. I love the movie, but I mean, for a mind to be able to come up with any of that kind of stuff, man, yeah. that's incredible. Wow. So here, here's the idea. You're a married man. Now, two years ago, you and your wife were in a situation together. Something happened. It doesn't matter what it was. Something happened. You experienced it one way because you're a white male with brown hair of a certain build, a certain height, with a certain timber in your voice and a way you sound and a way you talk and a way that you interpret based on your past and your youth and what your parents did to you and all of that. So you interpreted that situation the way you would. Now your wife interpreted the exact same situation through all of her filters of being a woman, of being this, of being a mother, all of these things in her past and how the world treats her because she's a woman and how she speaks. So then what happens is two days ago, you asked your wife about that specific incident and you talked about it from your point of view. Said, hey, honey, remember, remember when we were in Utah and, you know, we saw this thing and that happened and, you know, wasn't that great? And she looks at you and goes, what are you talking yeah, about? WTF. What's wrong with yeah. you? Yeah, w, what is wrong with you? That's not what happened at all. And you both look at each other stunned and because who's correct? So yeah, here's yeah. where the idea of a we consciousness comes in. Whatever happened two years ago, arguably didn't happen because it's all through filters. So you filtered an entire interaction the way you did, she did the way she did. Now, the beautiful thing about a we consciousness is as soon as you compare notes and come up with a better solution, there's a third reality. That third reality is intensively more accurate than the two separate realities huh. because there's more information you can talk through it. You can see it from multiple sides. So now there's a third reality of what happened two years ago. That is what a we consciousness is. Incredible. And when we work yeah. with companies, it's actually exponential because I didn't know that I was doing this. And when I met my now business partner, Amir, he taught me that. And he's like, this is what you're doing. And I'm like, oh, fantastic. And <laughs> I didn't even know. We, I'm apparently brilliant. I know. Yeah. <laughs> right. We'll just say it came from him. But we use it in a different way. Now, here's the thing. My, my wife is also my business partner. And when we went from small clients to a whale, a billion-dollar client, yeah. a huge executive team, she was worried. She's like, our process. We don't know if our process is going to work for a billion-dollar company. Now, the we consciousness thing we covered, right? So if you and I yep. talk through, we get a better result. Yeah. So a friend of mine is he's got a he's got his PhD in mathematics and a PhD in AI. And what he explained to me is there's this thing called the Bayesian principle in mathematics, which has been around for a long time. Okay. He knows this because the Bayesian principle is the more data you have, the more accurate the interpretation. Hmm. Right? So if you've got a thousand data points versus six and you interpret that, the thousand data points are going to give you a better answer. Yeah. 
So he actually taught me that the bigger the company is that we work with, the more accurate the result is. And we actually did find that to be true because when we've got more information, more data, more people to drive from and talk through and be locked in a room with and ask questions to and do all of these little we consciousness things all over the place, the more we have, the actual more accurate that harmonic note becomes. And it's not that it's less accurate with a very small company. It's just that with a very small company, there's less data. It's still accurate. For sure. Absolutely. Company, there's less reference points. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. so your process works better with larger companies, and that's typically always the case. I mean, even with the more uh, data, the better. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think back to musician days, right? It was a lot easier playing in front of 3,000 people than it was 300. Yeah, that yeah. way, there, there was way more reference because, you know, if it's a couple people over there, it's like this section that just looks all of a sudden enormously larger when it's a small crowd yeah. that actually seems like they seem to be disgruntled and not enjoying the show versus mm -hmm. you could find, you could pick out 3,000, you could pick out easily 2,000, 2,500 people that are enjoying themselves in that moment, yeah. or at least maybe they're not and they're, or they're really going deep into a song. I mean, you know this because music dude creates an atmosphere and that's one thing I really, 100%. really love uh, i love music and the atmosphere is so important and I, I wonder man do you use music in your process not from a theory perspective but actually when you're training or creating an environment that way even with people walking into a room you might be training them in yes i say it re reluctantly but there there are certain times yeah where you pull a Don Draper and you use the room and the sound to your advantage yep, yep. and the client has no chance. We, we have done that. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's it. They have no chance right on. I feel like I need to bring well, and, like, <laughs> and the thing is it's, it's all, everything we do yeah. is a hundred percent evidence-based. So when, when we take our deduction to a client, when yeah. we take a harmonic note to a client, we don't take three different ones and say, hey, you could be this, this, or this, because yeah. that's not what it is. There's one Rick Jordan, and there's one way that you communicate with your audience. Now, you could say, well, hey, I'm more like Joe Rogan because I, I can do, you know, I can go on and be a commentator. I can be on TV. I could be this. I could be that. But if you take Joe Rogan as a human being, all of those are sub to whatever is at the pinnacle that's for sure that. right on yep right everything yep. else is just access points. yeah they're attributes you right. got it yeah and the key is to figure out well what's that the harmonic note yeah where do we really fit uh and that's that's the fun part but yeah i mean when i we had to get used to no fireworks yeah i call it, it it's a sitting ovation because when I sit, when me and my whole team sit down with a client, like when we, we took, we're in the business of British Columbia, that's the airline. That was the, the, the phrase we put to them. We're in the business of British Columbia that nice. made them a ton of money. And it's a perfect balance of who and what they are, why they exist, how they came to be and what the market wants from them. It's a perfect balance. And when we took it to them, they're like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I'm like, not jumping up and down or anything you just say no oh, cool okay that's it, a yeah it, it, so, solid man okay cool we'll see you later we're gonna go get lunch yeah yeah that's, yeah, <laughs> that's fine i'm like so i'm gonna train your your guys then oh yeah that would be great yeah yeah i'm like can you can you just give me a high five you know oh my it's, gosh it's weird Go, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, you're bringing back days now, like when I played in front of small church crowds, right? And, and you're like giving your heart, you're putting your heart and soul into what you're playing, what you're singing. And then it's like, hey, how is everybody? I'm like, yeah, we're cool. That's good.
Yep, just silence. I'm, like, I'm expecting hands to go up. I'm expecting jumping around, you know, and then, then it's just, yeah, that was good. You played well today. Thanks. And, and it's weird. There's a weird reverence to it. But yeah, where the fireworks come is when you talk to them later and they're like, yeah, our revenue went up by 28% in the middle of a recession. Yep. You're welcome, pal. Thank yep, you, Thank you got you it. Much. And there's even a reverence to that because it, there's, there's this when you're deeply working from exactly who and what you are it's it's confidence not excitement it's sure. esteem rather than projection it's it's all of this deeply internal stuff it's kind of like this knowing of like yeah i'm doing the right thing yeah and yeah. You, you become cautiously optimistic and you say well i don't want to screw that up like i want to be careful here you know yeah. like if this is true and all the evidence says it's true and this all makes sense and all my team is 100 percent on board it's our voices not the agency's voice yep that's the other thing too with an agency i have to teach my copywriters when i work with them i have to teach all of them that they're using their own words for the client and they got to stop doing that and a lot of them are like no man i'm a professional copywriter i would never do that and i'm like well here let me have a look because we actually map out their language and then we have all their terms, their voice. And when you do that, and it actually is their terms, the words they use, yeah, there's an ownership yeah. that they attach to it, which is really, really deep. Yep. It's really deep. I love that. I've had sites redesigned for me you know, and everything like that. And I always end up going in after the fact and rewording a lot of the copy just to get, you know, swapping out different words because of that same scenario. You know, and I, I use a great branding agency right now and I really feel like they understand my voices because their goal is like you. And I, I call I, I thank them. I'm like, thank you for being a microphone for my voice. They're not trying to change my voice. They are the amplification of who I already am. Yeah, and I, yeah. I love it when something comes back and it's just, oh my gosh, that looks exactly like what I said. And they're like, well, it actually was. We pulled it from your podcast, you know, <laughs> or, yeah, or, from yeah, one, yeah. or from one of your talks. It is literally your words, you know, and like, oh, well, that's why it makes sense. Okay, cool. But yeah, same with like some, someone that didn't do that. And I've had web designers especially do this, man, because they're very much into yeah. that design and, and linear mentality and like, oh, this sounds cool yeah. because I've seen this in a thousand other places. So we're going to put it here it's like but that's not me you know that's not this the, is the font that's hot right now this yeah. these are the color schemes that are hot here's a yeah. hole in the market here's here's the thing your belief systems and the deepest psychology of why people attach to you don't give a crap what's contemporary yep they don't care what's hot right now they don't care about any holes in the market nobody cares about that we think we are we're, we're programmed to do that mbas teach yeah, you that. Yeah. they teach you the hole in the market fill the hole in the market do that business but here's the problem Look at Apple. So you look at Steve Jobs. His idea was technology should be simple and in the hands of everybody. I think of another one of his ideas was we should charge a lot for it. Yep, but that definitely that was. was. His yep. idea. <laughs> and he rose that company up. And then one day his executive team said, you know what? IBM has this laptop thing out of ThinkPad. Let's just make the same thing and charge $100 less. I'm going to make a lot of money. Yeah. And here's the thing. They were correct. They were 100% correct. That's yep. Harvard Business School. That's that's exactly correct. It's something that what works. you're supposed to do. Yeah. But it had nothing to do with them. Yeah. It had nothing to do with Apple. So Steve said, no way. I'm not doing that. We're going to go over here because this is what I believe. This is what we're good at. This is what I think we can accomplish. But bigger than that, he said, you know, I don't go to the market and ask them what they want because they don't know. Same as Henry Ford. If I ask people what they want, they say a faster horse. Steve Jobs, if he went to the if he went to the market and said, what do you want 
your Walkman to do? Would you have turned around and said, Rick, I want a cassette tape with a thousand songs on it? Because it's inconceivable. It <laughs> yeah. wouldn't have happened. Yep. Just so for those listening, uh, cassette tape is something that doesn't exist anymore. So, so just, yes. it did. It, it was a real thing <laughs> at one point in time. Yeah. I, I had one Walkman, then I went to CDs. And yes, CDs don't really exist anymore either. But hey, there we go. No. Yeah. But at that time, that's people were thinking, even on CD players, they were yeah. thinking, I got 12 songs, maybe 18, maybe. Yep. So if he went to the market and said, what would you like me to do with that box? Well, I'd, I would like it the, you know, this, the size of a lighter and I would like a thousand songs. It was inconceivable. Yeah. So for him doing market research to come up with that was ludicrous. It was absolutely ludicrous. So he didn't. And he got fired for it. Yeah. So what did he do? He went and made Pixar. Yes, so he did. So when he came back, <laughs> so when he came, and I think he made THX. So what did he do when he comes back? He makes the iPod. Yeah. One button. Now, the brilliant thing about the iPod, if you really look at the history of it, the brilliant thing was it was a belief system product combined deeply with the psyche of the planet. Now, let's remove the iPod because for 20 years, you know what was getting sold? MP3 players. Yeah, right. You know on. what MP3 players were? They they shaped them as hockey pucks. They shaped them as anything. They put stickers on them, and they were all in the bulk bins everywhere. And nobody bought them. Yep. Because what all the companies did was they told you how many megabytes. They told you how many folders you could you make. You got all it. This stuff, and nobody bought them, and they stayed with their CD players. Because nobody. Do you know how much? Do you know how many megabytes your favorite song is right now? Probably, oh, probably five, maybe ten. Yeah, something like that. Maybe. So if I told you you could have 85 megabytes, you're like, okay, how many songs? Nobody wanted to do it. Yeah. So he came out and just said a thousand songs in your pocket, one button. He changed the world. Yeah. Because it connected deeply. Remember his belief systems, technology in the hands of the individual simply. He did that. Yeah. And Make charge a lot better. for it. Charge a lot for it. And then yeah. the market went, yeah, I want a thousand. It was unfathomable at yeah. the time. Yeah. And everyone went, a thousand songs and, and i would bet you back then everyone was like i only got like 160 when really everybody probably had ten thousand. yeah but nobody knew that so that right there was a harmonic note right there that's an example of a yep, harmonic you note got it that arguably he got fired for and then he got back and changed the world and then he just led through with that with all these other innovations yeah, yeah. which were amazing and and that's what we all want from a business isn't it you got make it. something that, that you deeply wanted to make that's from your belief system, not from a product market fit. It's everything inside of you wants to build that. And then the market goes, hey, that's just exactly what we want. Yeah, right on. That's beautiful, man. That's awesome. That's a wow. You're kind of mind blowing me right now. Blowing my mind. You see how I, t you know, you're like, my mind just got blown, but I turned it into a verb. That's what I do. I like flip things around a little <laughs> bit, you know, mind blowing me. Yeah, it's, that could go a lot of different ways. Anyways, we could just move right on. <laughs> we'll keep it clean. We're we'll going to keep, keep it clean. You're mind blowing me right now. Yes, man. This is how are you an acquired taste? Because I, I don't get that. I mean, unfiltered Dave is like the best Dave ever for real. Well, uh, and it. it, it the unfiltered part comes after, like right now, yes, I, I'm I'm reasonably willing to talk about any topic. However, I will pull my brakes when I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. Now, I don't like conjecture. I don't like I don't like making stuff up. I don't yeah. like standing on thin ice. I don't like it. 
Um, That's important however, too, marketing, because you should never lie. You should never dive into a realm that you don't know. You should never just make crap up on the spot just to try to get the sale. That's what that's what destroys trust. So, man, I appreciate that about you. Yes. And the, 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 the whole idea of fake it till you make it is flawed because here's the thing. There is a consultant I know, and I obviously won't name this fellow, but he faked it till he made it. And I have no idea if he's made it now because I don't know if he's still faking it. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> because he's still faking it? I, I don't know. But the problem is if I fake it, if we really look at that and dissect what that means, lie to people so they believe you and hire you. Yeah, yeah. Are you serious? Are you serious? Because, okay, so I came in on a lie. What am I going to leave on? I came in on a little ground. How do I leave this admirably? Yep. And the idea then is, yeah, but you got the big job. You can hire the right people to figure it out. Can you? What if you don't even know? Because if you're faking it and you're lying to get the job, arguably, you don't even know what you agreed to. Yeah, yeah. So now you're going to hire people to figure it doesn't make any sense. It's not fair to the client and deeply it's not fair to you because, again, you're leaving yourself out of the equation by faking it. The best thing you can do is systematically work up over time, systematically. Sell what you know, sell what you know, sell what you know. And if you don't know, don't sell it. Don't fake it. Because I just don't like that word. Where I don't like where that has led the world. There's a lot of things that are led astray because you have people that aren't competent to fulfill the task. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not going to get political here on either your country or mine, but it's the wrong thing to do. It's, it's extremely dangerous. So... The unfiltered part, um, the truly unfiltered part exists deeply after about six beers. It really nah. goes off the rails. <laughs> well, you know, we should try this sometime. You know, I was thinking about this, you know, because I, it, it beers your thing, you know. podcast? Uh, yeah. <laughs> my, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> my thing is scotch, you know, so I'll, I'll bring out a bottle of Macallan 18, you know, and we'll really go to town. Wonderful. But yeah, yeah, but that's, uh, dude, that's, uh, I feel you on that, you know, because there's even a segment on this show, and it doesn't come up all the time, but it's called The Straight Truth, you know, and it's just. Love it. It's unfiltered, but yet compassionate at the same time, because it's something that, that I feel that people need to hear. But then there's also a segment that we have fairly often called The One Thing, you know, which is mm. also where I feel that it's everyone's responsibility on themselves. So all of my listeners, you know, they're always it's like I say you get some work to do every time you listen. Right. Yeah. Not only just share this out, you know, with, with at least one person that, you know, that needs to hear the message today, but also that you extract one thing because, you know, I have just this range and multitude of guests that are on the show and not everyone resonates with everybody with 100% of everybody that's out there and it just is how it is and that's fine but no matter what dude you can always go in whether it's a conference an event I mean a lot of the virtual events these days post COVID right a lot of the virtual events just suck you know they're boring because it's no a doubt. different format nobody knows what they're doing you know it's not even like this because I'm doing virtual events live training once a month but it's it's like a TV show it's lively it's interactive it's awesome you know I know it's awesome because I know my energy I mean, it's just like this, right? Mm. And it's professionally done. It's not just Zoom. That's not, that's yeah. not how it is. There's actually thought. Thank God I was a musician and I understand how to design an atmosphere and an environment yeah, at this yeah. point, Intention right? Intention and release. Exactly. Intention and release is something you and I have. Yeah. Because if you run a meeting dry, so my wife is a straight up management consultant and, you know, she'll give a 30 page document to a client that's brilliant and it's a strategy and this and that, but it's 
dry it's flat oh when i go into clients it's a roller coaster yep yep and i love taking her work and putting it inside the things that we referenced earlier is it's it's, it's a bit ethereal it's a bit almost whimsical right yeah when you yeah. put that data underneath and bring it to life now i can talk really fast yeah I can get them excited yep. and i can stop dead and i can leave them all sitting there going what yeah. just happened you got it like you happened something that came out of that that's beautiful man and that's the thing that I think that musicians get. And I think yeah. the playwrights and, and stuff like that, right on. You know, people make right movies, on. they get that. Yeah. It's important. It's it's key in business. For sure. I like our unfair advantage that you and I have. Just uh, I'm, I mean, I'll be, <laughs> dude, I'll, I'll be proud of that all day long and cocky about that all day long too, man. It's a, it is. It's an unfair Absolutely. advantage. Yep. And I, I'm very yeah. grateful that that's the case that I spent so many years as a musician, just like you did, because it, there's a yeah. there's a different type of connection, a different type of psychological and energy connection that takes place with that. Yeah. To where we care. I, yeah. We freaking I, I care. I spoke at a conference. <laughs> yeah. I spoke at a conference in Florida last year for, um, it's called the Building Business Capabilities. It's the biggest management consulting on rules conference in the world. And it's from mm. this company based out of the US and Canada. And I actually completely rebranded them. And then I spoke at their conference. And when I was talking to Ron, the fellow who co-owns the conference, they started and yeah. partnered with, with a company that could make it big. And like thousands of people go. So I got the opportunity to speak there and Ron took the main stage with like 1200 or 1500 people. And I took a side stage. I think I had a couple of hundred people and I was talking to Ron and Ron said to me, he's like, you've got a way to move the crowd. Yeah. And because he, he's a business rule. He literally wrote the book on business rules. Literally. Like he literally writes the book. On it. <laughs> he was one of the first and his books are dry, but he's incredibly smart. And he works yeah. with the CDC. He works with governments all around the world. Um, he helps banks like reverse engineer how they work and put it back together again and restructure from the ground up. Like this guy is no chump. But when he's on stage, he's pushing data and he's pushing facts and he's getting everything in. And you're like, yes, that's right. I have people crying at the end of my talk. Yep. Because yeah. I personalized it and I got yeah. through to them. And this harmonic note, I tell you, it's for you and it's for me too. The way I got it across to the crowd was by telling my origin story, which I fought against for years. Why do I do what I do? And where it started was my first family in England, 1974, when I was born. The, fourth, the first family that I was promised um, was in Southwest England. Cousins, relatives, all of this, a huge family. Yeah. But then at four years old in 1977, my dad got a job opportunity in Canada and he took it. Now, back then, um, the man gets a job, the family goes. It wasn't like now where you would debate about it. It was just my mom told me, like, that's what the times were. Yeah. So we moved to Canada. Now we're in Ontario in the middle of winter where we opened our door once and it was snow to the top. We had to crawl out the second story. We stayed there for a year. And then my dad got a job opportunity in Alberta. So we, we bought a uh, bus and we drove across Canada and went to Alberta. The second we got there, we got put in a house, my mom and two young children. And my dad went to the oil rig for four and a half or three and a half weeks. And he came back for three days and then went back again. We were alone. Hmm. So we did that for a while. Imagine a mom in a city where she knows nobody in the 70s, you can't just call Canada. You can't yeah, just call England sure. back yep. then. So, and then my dad came home and said, I got a job opportunity to work in an offshore oil rig in Southeast Asia, we're leaving. And my mom said, no. So what happened to me was I have a deep sense of abandonment. I have abandonment issues. That's what I learned from that because my dad took the job. 
And I really didn't connect with him again until I was 20 when I moved to Malaysia. Yeah, yeah. And then I got my second family, which was much smaller because the whole family that I was promised was gone. They were all in England. It, it was You couldn't Zoom back then. It didn't exist. So then the second family, my stepdad and I, we just don't see things eye to eye. We are no better or worse than each other. We're just vastly different. So we sat at the same dinner table using the same words under the same roof for decades but the words meant different things hmm. and we were silent. So that left with me a deep push to help people be understood, including myself. And when I got my first office job, I remember sitting at the table, sitting at the boardroom table, realizing that we were using the same words at the same table under the same roof, but they meant different things. Now there were silos. There were words and terms that you and I would use in business to pretend that we're in alignment because you know what, Rick, I got my stuff to do. You got your stuff to do. As long as we're going in the same general direction, we'll be fine. And then weren't. And I didn't realize it when I was in that company 20 years ago, but that's where my quest started. And I didn't even realize I couldn't verbalize anything I just said to you then that's came out recently. But when we look at how we connect companies, that harmonic note, it came from there. How do we get people deeply to understand who is on their team? How do I get the best out of my people deeply based on their belief systems? How do I get that? Yeah. How do I find that? Yeah. How do I isolate it? How do I give you a voice in an organization? And how do I make sure everybody is accounted for, they're heard? That was where the quest began. And that's why now when I look back at the blueprints we give to clients, that's exactly what they do. And it's from my deepest parts of my origin story where I feel lacking or I felt they could be better. And then I realized it's part of the human condition. It wasn't my mom. It wasn't my dad. It wasn't my stepdad. They're great people. I have nothing to complain about in my childhood. It was wonderful. But the human condition is we, we, we use words that we think are being interpreted the way that I understood them. Remember the we consciousness, you oh, yeah. wife, you use the same yeah. words, but they mean different things. So, then the question, Rick, is how often do you do it? Do you do it with Dan? Do you do it with your wife? Who do you do it with? Guess what? You do it with everybody. Because we all do it. It makes life easier because I've got my stuff to do. You've got your stuff to do. And I know if I say freedom, I know if I say car, I know that that will get me to my goal. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem when things get complicated and you've got a lot of those words and you have a whole sea level and they're all using different words, well, now what does anybody mean? And that's why you have executive teams that are all going in different directions and they don't even know it. And that's why Steve Jobs, in my opinion, got pushed out because he wanted to pull everybody in one direction. And they're like, you can't speak for all of us because we're all really smart, too. And he's like, no, I can speak for you. It's my company. And they're like, not anymore. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because he didn't take the step yep. to pull them all in because he's the anomaly that didn't need that. He could pull. Yeah, yeah. Tim Cook is more like what we're talking here, where he For can sure. think and bring it all together. And that's why they just got evaluated at the first $2 trillion company. Yeah, yeah. But he doesn't make the news the way Steve Jobs did. You got it. He's the safer route. And He's the let's make the same product for $100 less. Yeah, and when I took my audience in, in Florida through that and I showed them the process, and there's a lot, of course, I haven't showed you and, and the audience. I mean, it's a lot of it's on my website. And if you go to the book website, you go to Living Blueprint, you can go through. There's a 28-minute video there where I actually yeah. talk through a lot of this if people want to sit through that. You That's livingblueprint.com, right? Living yes. Group, yeah. Go there, everybody. Any, yeah. 
Yeah, pretty much anywhere you click on that website, it's going to take you to the book website, billiondollarideology.com. I am going to ask you for your email to, to watch the video because I, I do want to get this out to the world. Yep, and I, yep. I, I do. And, you know, that's the... I can't remember where I was going with that, but the, yeah, I mean, that's, there's a lot deeper dive there of yeah. how this all actually constructs and gets put together. I love it. That's awesome, man. I'm going to get a copy of the book. That's for sure. Cause I, I'm intrigued. It'll be now. done soon. It'll be done soon. Awesome. So there's a pre-order. Is there a pre-order? Not yet, but you know what? I will actually build one right away. Awesome. There we go. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll put that on, on both websites. We'll put that on Living Blueprint. We'll put that on Perfect. Glad right I could help you we've, right there. There we go. <laughs> we, we've, been, we've been busy writing. <laughs> yeah, good, man. That's awesome. That man, I, I've really enjoyed our conversation. You know, we, we got into a Thank lot you. of the Thank deep you. stuff today. And uh, I'm pumped, man. When uh, When is your book going to be finished? Do you know that? We're doing a phased approach. So the end of October, um, we're actually releasing a course. Okay. Um, and we're we're having the first or the second draft of the book will be done then. Um, we're going to do a pre-edition of the book that uh, is where we're debating is not having an ISBN number necessarily, but it's going to go out to select people. It'll be different from the book that gets formally published. It'll have an extra yeah, chapter. Yeah. Uh, the idea with that is we want to go after specific people to endorse the book. We've already got some key people endorsing it. Awesome. It's already done good. Um, and then once we've got the right yeah. people on it, we're going to go for a full uh, thing. But the, the course, just to talk about that yeah. for a quick second, we looked at it and said, you know, we could sell this because we build it into an ideology and a process that anybody can do. It's like, well, okay, well, I can sell it eight times a year and have a million dollar company. I don't want a million dollar company, Rick. My ambitions are a wee bit bigger than that. So, like, well, well, if it's called the if, billion dollar ideology, yeah, there you go. Yes. Well, and then it's like, well, if you know, if we build a course and then take it deeper and deeper and deeper, we can become exponential. But bigger than that, I do believe what we have within this book and, and the ideology that we bring, I think it can change a lot of lives. And I'm not out to change one company here and there. Yeah. If the pervasive ideas that we have that we've proven work on mass. I want to get this out there. Yeah, right. So that's on. why the course is being available. I'd rather teach a thousand people a year than ten. Yep, I feel you. That's awesome, man. Really cool. So we got livingblueprint.com. Uh, do you have uh, an Instagram handle that people can find you at? I believe there is one, but I never use it. All right. <laughs> uh, mainly, uh, I've been going after um, LinkedIn. That's where I've been posting my content and yep. uh, on Facebook. But it's more of a. It's not really a like a yeah. A, you know, like your Facebook is set up as a as a as a brand page where people follow. Mine is still a personal page, so I do have a living blueprint page. It's all on my website. Go to the bottom, and everything's there. Yeah, that's cool. We'll have all the links in the show notes too, man. But, but brother, yeah. thank you so much. And uh, the, the the last thing that was just really interesting to me, if you can just touch on this quickly, is you're a best selling artist in Malaysia. Yeah, I mean, a, what, what, what's up with Malaysia? <laughs> you know, it? It's a loaded statement. Um, I'll keep it short. I mean, what, what happened was I when I was young, I was watching MTV and much music and I had convinced myself that I was going to be a famous musician. I'm like, that's it. Yeah, that looks fun. I had already decided I, I wasn't really interested in school. Now, when I say I was a high school dropout, uh, high school in Canada is three years. I was there for five. I still don't have my paper. Like, I really didn't want to graduate. Like, I yeah. was adamant. So as soon as I got the opportunity to leave, I, I went straight to Malaysia. Now, 
when I got there, my dad owned an entertainment business at that time. So he knew a lot of famous people and he would build stages and do laser light shows. And about a year into that, there was this opportunity with a production company and one of the biggest cigarette companies in the world, Peter Stuyvesant, they were doing this national promotion, which every Friday night they had this dance competition. And somehow they had this idea that they wanted a guitar player at the end to do a 20 minute guitar solo. Now, I can tell you straight, the last thing you want is a 20 year old doing a 20 minute guitar solo uh -huh. with distortion and delay. I have, but I took the game. I have I uh, flashbacks, PTSD flashbacks to Guitar Center trips. <laughs> I know, yeah. and I remember my first day, like my first gig. I like sat in front of the crowd, and it's like dead silent. There's hundreds of people yeah. in this club, and I just started playing, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I watched Jimi Hendrix videos all day before that, thinking yep. that would tap into something yeah. that may not be there. So the shows inevitably good bad it was once a week yeah and after i think about a month of it my production company called me and said come into the office bring your guitars like a wednesday afternoon i'm like all right i only work friday nights so i go and i am gonna do my best to keep this brief but i go in <laughs> and i get to the front door and the guy's standing there he says okay go into this room and i go in and there's this this big indian guy there and he was already famous in malaysia he did beatbox and rap his name yeah. is yogi b and i and he was famous enough for me to know who he is and i don't listen to rap because I'd seen him in a club and the dude was amazing. Like, yeah, nice. Amazing. And he's now big in Bollywood. Like he's actually taken off and become a huge star in Southeast Asia and India. He uh, he does soundtracks for like the biggest films in India. Nice. Crazy. So I knew this guy. I saw him in a club. So my promoter says, okay, Peter Stuyvesant, they'll be here in half an hour, have a show, close the door, walk away. <laughs> so... I introduced myself and I said, I saw you at fire. You're really good. <laughs> He's like, okay. And I said, look, there's this song by Led Zeppelin. That's just guitar and drums. It's called Moby Dick. All you have to do is follow me. So I gave him a basic structure and I said, I do this part. You beatbox. I said, I've heard you. You can do this. He's like, okay. And then I do it. You do it. I do it here. We do it together a couple of times. And then I stop and you do a beatbox to do whatever you want. When you're done and you're bored, cue me back in. We do the whole thing over again together, and then we end. He's like, okay. We did it once. Took three minutes. And then we sat down for the next 17 minutes and waited. And then we went upstairs, and there's this row of white guys. Now, <laughs> 1995, I could go. I lived downtown Kuala Lumpur. I could go a month walking around downtown and not see a white guy. Yeah. So I go upstairs, there's six of these guys in suits from Europe, and they're all just sitting there staring at me because some of the shows didn't go so well. Yeah. So we plug in, turn it on, we played Moby Dick for them, and that was it. So now we built a show and we went out and it was fantastic. And it was nothing that anybody else was doing. And this was right back, like rap, like hardcore guitar and rap were just starting to get mixed, and we were doing it in 1995. So that guy was recording his full debut album. I just happened to have a studio at my house because of what my dad did. I had all concert gear and everything. So I would invite them to my house and I would just jam along with them. And the day before I left Malaysia, he and I had actually came up with a rhythm and a drum and a song and they were playing with it. And the day before I left, I went to the Sony studios and we recorded my track. And I remember I went in and sat down and with this big producer and, and they said, okay, so you have a, you have a guitar, you have a solo for the intro, right? And I said, no, I hadn't even thought about it. And the room went dead silent. <laughs> and I think yelling started. I was called a bunch of names and it kind of got thicker and heavier. It's all I remember. And I just, I, I stamped my foot on the floor and I said, everybody out of the room. And the producer's name was Paul. I said, look, 
I want distortion and I want delay. Maybe a little bit, of course, just a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> I'm press record. I don't want a metronome, just press record. He's like, okay. So I played the opening to this song and I'd never played it before, never played it since. And I played it with no metronome. He's like, okay, do it again. I'm like, all right. So I did it again. And it's actually quite long. He's like, okay, one more time. So I did it one more time. And we laid them all on top of each other and they were identical. Oh, wow. And actually in the song, when you listen to it, they're, they're all, they're layered and they're identical. Wow. And then we just basically just made something up on the spot and recorded this song. Now, this song was really, really heavy. The album was rhythm and blues and it was the, the album was the best. What was it? It won the best artist of the year. It sold more albums than any album in Malaysian history. They toured the world because of it. They opened for wow. in London. It got them onto a world stage. Um, but I recorded, I moved to Victoria, BC, and within one week I was a roofer. What? <laughs> two years, Talk about a year and a half. Wow. Yeah, it was bizarre. And then a year and a half later, I remember I got a call from Yogi and he said, yeah, the album came out today and we hit number one. I'm like, oh, that's great, man. So I was, I was, I was at work the next day, <laughs> just swinging a hammer with my yeah. ripped clothes. And I looked, I looked to the guy beside me and I'm like, yeah, my album came out to me. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, so did mine. I'm like, never mind. It ended up doing extremely well. And, it, and I never got any of it because yeah. my name is on the album. It's called poetic ammo. It was actually, it, believe it or not, like not believe it, check. It's, you can actually find it. The The song is called Ammunition Check. It's on, it's called, the music is Poetic Ammo. The band's Poetic Ammo. You can go and buy it and listen to it right now. It's online and my solos at the beginning featuring David Childs. And I, I left because I didn't want music handed to me. I wanted to live in a van. Yeah. I wanted to tour with my buddies. I wanted to play in clubs. And I kind of went from big crowds to a best-selling album overnight. And I'm like, you know, I want to earn my way up. Yeah, yeah. I want to be in nightclubs where nobody's there. I want to I want to be the opening act. I, I wanted to do that. And I also didn't want to stay living there. So it was thrown at me. I threw it back, but it did. It was interesting. It was fun. That's awesome. I man. recommend That's a fun it. story. If you have an opportunity like that, take it. Take it. Always take it for sure, man. David Childs, everyone. Thank you, my man, for coming on. And uh, thanks for ending with that story because that's fantastic, too. From best-selling well, Apple. Thanks for having best me. Best I really appreciate it. <laughs> Dude, it was good. Sweet. And that's it for today. Yes, it is. Cool. Hey, thanks for going all in with me today. Subscribe to the show so you get the new episodes when they come out. Rate and review the show if you're listening on iTunes. Follow me on social media at Mr. Rick Jordan. As always, you can find links and references to anything we've talked about in this episode in the show notes. And finally, share this episode with someone who you think might be able to level up their life by listening. I am Rick Jordan and I approve this message.